Well, good morning again. It's great to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this space. For those of you that gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, dining room, wherever you happen to be tuning in from. Um, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint or if we've never met, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. And I get the privilege of opening up God's word uh, with you all this morning as we jump back into a series that we began last week, this series that's on the life of Abraham that we've entitled A Field Guide to Loving God. That what we looked at last week and what we see all throughout the scriptures is God makes it very clear, like Jesus over and over and over again, when asked like, what's the most important thing? Like, what's the thing to focus on? Lays it out very clearly, first and foremost, to love God. And out of that would flow a love for one another, to love our neighbor. But first and foremost, this call to love God. And so what we are going to be doing is really looking at the life of Abraham as both this, this sort of field guide as he's going to help us see what it looks like to love God. Because we talked about last week briefly is that word, it's kind of mushy in our English language, right? That we can say things like, you know, I love pizza and I love my children. It's like, okay, we probably shouldn't use that same word love to describe both, all right? And some of you are like, well, I love my pizza more. But anyway, I don't know if that's true. But the reality is, listen, it, it, it it's confusing sometimes. And so Abraham, his life, all right, that we see in the book of Genesis, particularly at the end of Genesis 11 through Genesis 22, is going to help us. Not because he's a perfect example. He fails miserably. Uh, we're going to see that in full force next Sunday, so be sure to, uh, to come back for that, all right? But we do see him stumbling and staggering and tripping along the way, but he is on this journey, he is on this particular pilgrimage of what it looks like to follow God, and that's what we want to be after. And What does it look like to love God in the time and place that God has put us? And I think we'll even see today as sometimes we can be discouraged about, wow, it's really hard to be a Christian in this cultural moment, like right here, right now. And though there's some truth to that, I also hope that we will find some encouragement as we see in the life of Abraham a culture that's anything but you know, it, it's not a, a culture that is just bent on worshiping the one true God. Lots of people that are lost, including Abraham himself. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. I'll read a few different passages out of Genesis. We'll take it section by section. We're going to start out in Genesis chapter 11. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. There are some paperback Bibles in the pew backs that you can grab uh, one of those. Um, you can also go to cplife.church on your phone, and you'll see an image there that says sermon notes. You can click that. You'll find the text uh, this morning, as well as anything I put up on the, uh, on the screen. If there's a quote or something and there's space for you to, to take notes, also allows you to be able to go back and review some of those matters. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, and then through chapter 12, verse 9. And so as we get into this, I'll read it in just a moment. But when I say the name Abraham, like what comes to mind? Like how do you think of Abraham, right? Maybe it's the song, like Father Abraham and many sons. Maybe, maybe that's what comes to mind, right? I will not sing it, really. Um, but maybe you know enough to know, like, oh, yeah, he's the father of the faith, or he had great faith. He was this man that followed after God, and all of those things are true. But we also need to see what is listed out for us, what is detailed here at the end of Genesis chapter 11, to have an appreciation, because if we're called to love God, we need to see what God has done, what God has initiated, what God has done in the life of this man who is called Abram at the point when we meet him in Genesis 11. We'll later have his name changed to Abraham, same person that we're talking about. 
What does it look like to have a big, expanding view of God and to see what he's done in not only Abram's life, but in your life and in my life? And as a result, then, our minds are just blown, like our hearts explode as we were like, wow, like, look what God has done. And so where we pick up the story that I'm about to, to read is it's fair to say that this moment is just full of chaos. We might like to think of the story of Abraham of like, cool, like here's this man who's going to faithfully follow God. He's going to go and do all this. What we need to see is it starts out that things are unraveling, things are dark, things are chaotic, things are not as God intends them to be. We know that at this point in the story, I mean, we're only a few chapters in. Adam and Eve have failed miserably. They're kicked out of the garden. Noah is rescued. He gets off the boat and continues to sin in very profound, terrible, wicked ways. And now we're here at a point in the story that let's, if I can be honest, I'm going to read this. And this will be the part of the Bible typically that one might want to skip through to get to the good stories, right? Like we all tend to have our portions of the Bible probably like, oh, I love that story or I'm inspired by that story. And then if you've ever tried to read through the totality of the scriptures, sometimes you come to a passage like here at Genesis chapter 11, all right, at the end, and it's like, oh, they're talking about geographic locations that I have very little knowledge of, a bunch of names that I can hardly pronounce, what I'm about to read to you, I have never seen on anybody's coffee cup in the morning, right? Like these just super inspiring, man, I just love me some genealogies and I, I love some you know, geography, but we have to see this. We have to understand what's going on here. So again, Genesis chapter 11, verse 27 to 32. Let me read these words. This is God's word to us this morning. It says, now, these are the family records of Terah. And Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. All right, so right there, Terah, he's got three sons. He's got Abram, who will become Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Now, Haran died in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. And during his father Terah's lifetime, during his father Terah's lifetime, Abram and Nahor, they took wives. Abraham's wife was named Sarai. She'll become Sarah, but right now she's known as Sarai. And Nahor's wife was named Milcah. Riveting, isn't it? I mean, we're just like, man, this is so good. Life verses just abound in this section, okay? She was the daughter of Haran, now the father of both Milcah and Iscah. And Sarai was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. Verse 31. And Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, who was Haran's son, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. All right. What in the world is happening? Why is this important? Like, what do we need to see? Now, there's a couple things in here. We're going to look both at some geography and some names, all right? And I promise you, if you stick with this, I do think it's really helpful. I actually do think there's some really profound things that are happening here, even though this might read as like, what, you know, it's like, wow, I would rather watch paint dry right now. It's like, what is going on here? Why is this even included? What are these details? And the first thing that we are told of is there's this place from Ur of the Chaldeans, and then they later travel to a place called Haran. Now, I'll put a map up because my guess is most of you probably aren't super familiar with this, all right? And I don't know how well you'll be able to, to see this, but as you, as you look there, the first star kind of at the middle part of the screen, that's Ur, all right? This would be like modern-day Iraq, all right? It tells us that Abram is from Ur of the Chaldeans. It's in a land at the time that was referred to as Sumer. 
It's ancient Mesopotamia, all right? And what they do is then they set out at some point and they travel north some several hundred miles to Haran. And they were supposed to come down actually to Canaan, which borders the Mediterranean Sea. There, this is the land of, that would become the land of Israel. But they stop in Haran and Terah actually ends up dying there. So the family's on this journey and they just, for whatever reason, they make a pit stop in Haran. They're like, oh, it's really, it's really cool here. We'll just hang out, all right? And so they start living there for quite a while. Now, what's so fascinating about this and what is key for us to know if we're going to appreciate the calling on Abram's life is that at that time, in that place, the places of Ur and of Haran were the epicenter of the worship of the moon god, Sin, S-I-N, capital S-I-N, not to be connected with our theological term sin, although it was sin that they were worshiping sin, but I don't think that was the point, right? And so there's the moon god, this lunar deity that is named Sin, and the places where that worship took place was there in Ur, it's all through Sumer, but particularly in Ur, all right, and Haran. These are the two places. And so what we find here at this point is that this is the environment that Abram grew up in. He would have been familiar with this, and we're going to see more than just familiar in just a moment, all right? This was the environment that he grew up in. It was not a worship of the one true God. It was a land built on lots of deception and this belief that, oh, the moon God is what we are to worship and sacrifice for. And lest we think for a moment, though, because I think the hope at this point would be, okay, yep, that's what's happening, but surely Abram, like Terah and his family, because they're listening out these genealogies, there's 10 generations from Noah. Like they've come out of Noah's family line. And I think the hope would be, yeah, but they're gonna do something different. Like they're gonna stand for what's right. They're not gonna give in and acquiesce to the culture. Like they're gonna worship the one true God that rescued Noah and his family. Certainly that'll happen, right? The generations can't forget that God rescued our family from this particular worldwide flood, can they? But I told you it's chaos at this point. The scene just before this sort of listing out of families and geography was the Tower of Babel, where everybody was bent on making a name for themselves. And lest we think that Abram's family wasn't part of that, we need to see something very key here. There are names that are listed. For one, there's, let's talk about these from Terah, Sarai, and Milcah. I told you the moon god was the one that was most revered, most worshipped, all kinds of altars and other things that set up as temples that we'll talk about more in a moment to worship this god. Terah, his name literally translates and means this protector or defender of the moon god. So Abram's dad, all right, had a name that meant protector, defender of the moon god. His wife Sarai, her name, all right, can be transliterated to Saratu, this Akkadian name that means the partner of the deity of the moon god Sin. So that's who Abram's married to. He's got a father that's the defender and protector, all right, of the moon god, and his wife, all right, is named after, like, the partner of the moon god, and then his sister-in-law is Milcah, which her Akkadian, like the transliteration, is Melkatu, all right? Fun names to say, if you're looking for any names for any kids you might have, right, maybe you look to these, maybe not, I don't know, but Melkatu, her name, all right, means the daughter of the moon god. So it's not just, oh, these families out there and they're getting it wrong. No, no, 
Abram's family, like the family he was born in, all right? They were not following the one true God. They did not pay attention to how God had rescued Noah and how God was forming and calling and bent on bringing about a a people so he might bring about his redemptive purposes. At this point in the story, we need to see that it is very likely that Abram and his entire family were just like everybody else, worshiping the moon god, Sin. And it's in this place that we are going to read in just a moment, Genesis 12, and of God calling to Abram. And lest we think, too, that, well, maybe I'm misunderstanding that, in the book of Joshua, Joshua 24, this is years later, as the people are getting ready to take, go into the promised land that God has promised them, as we'll see in Genesis 12, we read these words, Therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. These are these commands, like as you go into the land, and get rid of the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. That call to get rid of the gods from beyond the Euphrates, this is a direct reference to Ur and Haran and the places that Abram would have grown up in. And so at this point, at the end of a super boring section of the Bible, right, where we're just like, oh, there's these names, these geography, and all this sort of stuff, we actually then are facing this particular question. How will Abraham come to know and to worship and to love the one true God? Because at this point, let's be honest, he's lost. Like, if there's any part of you or me that thinks, yep, like, hero of the faith, he's always gotten it right, right? He's like the church kid that never strays. He's just been on the straight and narrow his whole life. That is not Abram. That is not this one who would one day become the father of the faith. At this point, he's not the one that the writer of Hebrews would talk about as sort of this hall of fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Right now, Abraham is lost, confused, Pagan worshiping the moon god just like everybody else. If we're going to understand how we can learn from Abraham what it means to love God, we have to understand and appreciate how our God works. So look with me at Genesis 12. We'll read verses 1 to 3, but then also verse 7. And I want us to think in these terms that there's this condescension, this condescending that happens. Now, when we use that word, typically it's not good, right? That person's very condescending. It means they're self-righteous. They're talking down to you, all of that. We need to see this in a sense of which God himself condescends to us, how God initiates, how God pursues, how God runs after us. We see that theme over and over and over again in the scriptures And so look at these words in Genesis chapter 12. I'll read verses 1 to 3 and then verse 7. And as I put it up on the screen, just pay attention to some of the things that I've highlighted here that are in this kind of color blue as well, because I want you to see who's active here. Who's doing the pursuing? Is this about Abram and his achievement and how awesome and amazing he is? Or is it about how awesome and amazing our God is? It says this, The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, the land that I will show you. Notice how often it's I will. Look at the promises, the commitment that God has to this pagan moon worshiper, all right? I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. He's like, your wife might be barren, but just know this, I'm gonna build an entire nation from your family. 
and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. He's like, hey, you just tried to be part of that construction of the Tower of Babel, he's saying, that was happening in that time. And why did they do it? We need to make a name for ourselves. The only way that we get a name that matters is when God names us. When God calls us son or daughter, it's not about what we're seeking to achieve, but what God gives us, how we receive his grace. He's like, I'm gonna bless you. And he says this, I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. He's like, I have your back and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram, it's not just for you and the ones closest to you, but this is a worldwide blessing. Like the ripple effect here from what happens in Abram's life is felt right here, right now in this place. It's been going on for thousands of years. And then verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so amidst the chaos and the confusion and the rebellion and the false worship and just the utter lostness and darkness of Abram's life and his family, we are told that God comes down that God pursues. The answer to the question like, how will Abram come to know and to love and to serve and to worship the one true God? Is again, back in chapter 12, verse one, the Lord said. Abram didn't call out. Abram didn't get a plan together to say, you know what, I've been feeling a little bit like I'm not worshiping rightly. Maybe I need to study a little bit. He doesn't spend some time trying to Google what his options are, right? Simply the Lord said, the Lord pursued. Had Abram not had the Lord come to him, he would have died a rather inconsequential death. Sometime later, nobody would know of him. He would have just been a lost pagan separated from God. But God loves to show up and he loves to pursue. And he's not pursuing the people that have achieved He's not pursuing the people that have it all together. He's not pursuing those that are the elite. He's pursuing, as he always does, the foolish, the broken, the lost, the confused. Like he looks out and he's like, ah, a bunch of moon worshipers. That's my guy right there, all right? And yes, he's from this family line, and that's hugely significant because you see God's faithfulness to building a people. But he looks out. And it has nothing to do. Genesis 12 doesn't happen. God doesn't make these commitments and promises because Abram's awesome. Abram's completely lost. He's dead in his sin. He's worshiping the wrong God. And God comes to him, condescends to him, moves towards him, pursues him. And this would have flown in the face of everything that Abram would have known. Because if you and I could travel, even to this day, to Ur of the Chaldeans, you would come across something that has been, archaeologists have discovered, and then they've, they've kind of helped unearth and done a bit of a recreation to scale of putting back together what is the, the, great, the great ziggurat of Ur. So this is a sort of this depiction of what it would look like to scale. It's large. It's hundreds of thousands of bricks. And when we look at things today, Right? And we're like, oh yeah, this impressive buildings. I mean, just think about it. like ancient times, ancient Mesopotamia, how revolutionary it was that they built a brick. Like, oh, we can fashion these and stack them and mortar and one upon the other. And then they would begin to build these. And as they've studied when this, they were all over ancient Mesopotamia, but in particular, this large one of renown 
They believe to have been present during the time when Abram and his family lived in Ur. And so Abram likely would have walked those steps. He would have traversed up to this level, and then they'd go up some more steps, and they'd go up to another level, and eventually you would get up to the top, and there was an altar, and sacrifices were made. And it was literally referred to as this gateway or this stairway to heaven. Because there's this posture that the people had of like, we've got to achieve, we've got to do, we've got to climb in hopes that the gods might bless us. And so it is very likely that Abram and his entire family would have gone up those steps and they would have offered sacrifices. They would have pled that the moon god sin and the other deities of that area pleading for blessing, bless our crops, make us prosperous, do these things, give us children. How often did Abram walk those steps pleading with the gods of fertility that his wife might become pregnant? This is the context and everything that Abram knew and everything that people were familiar with is that you have to achieve, you have to climb, you have to go to the gods. The gods don't come to you. The gods don't pursue you. But then Genesis 12. It's radically upside down, countercultural. Everything that Abram knew was climb and climb and climb to get to the gods, to get to the presence of God. Climb the ziggurat, make the sacrifices. And the danger for you and I is that we can engage in what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. And it's this idea that we look at something like that and think, oh, that's kind of cute, that's, you know, that's archaic, I can't believe that they did that, and fail to ask ourselves this question, what ziggurat are you constructing? What ziggurats are we constructing? To think, oh, that that was for people many, many years ago in ancient places like Mesopotamia, in places like Ur, but we have moved on. But the bent of my heart, the bent of your heart, and every person from Abram all the way down through the generations, there's something in us that says, I've got to achieve. We are desperate for the blessing. We're desperate for a word from God that we are loved, that we are secure, that we are seen. And so we're always going out wondering, if I achieve this, if I climb this, if I just get the next rung on the ladder, if I get that job or that promotion, I achieve some certain level of success, if so-and-so notices me, if I'm loved, if I'm pursued by this person, in all of those things become ziggurats for us, things that we think, I've gotta have this. Some years ago, I read a, an article, um, I was reminded of this th th this week, that it showed up another blog post I was reading and I'd forgotten, so I went back and, and read this and it was on um, th this woman, she is a well-known, um, at least in certain generations, many of you is probably beyond your time, uh, but I remember her growing up, her name was Chris Everett, here's a, a picture of her, Chris Everett, she was a fantastic tennis player, all right? Numerous times, was number, held the number one ranking for women's tennis, won 18 Grand Slam titles in her career. So this is like Wimbledon, US Open, like all of those things, right? Just a master at her craft. So good, so skilled. At the absolute top of her game. And she was interviewed years later after she retired. And she's reflecting on just what that's been like 
having climbed, having ascended, having achieved. And here are the words that she said as she was being interviewed. She said this, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. I love her honesty. And it should cause us to think, even though the circumstances might be different, unless you're a dominant tennis player and I just don't know it, those circumstances might be different, but we're all looking for an identity. And when something that we've pursued goes away, that thing we fear might go away, and it feels like then like the ground is not stable, like everything's collapsing, it's worth asking, is it possible that I've made that thing ultimate? That I've constructed a ziggurat, and I'm seeking to achieve and to climb and just hoping for the blessing, hoping for acceptance. It's not a bad thing that she was really good at tennis. She stewarded that gift well. But if ever we take the good gifts that God has blessed us with, and we make all like sacrifices of like attention and energy and affection all go toward that, what happens when that thing isn't there? What happens when you don't look the way or feel the way you once did? What happens when the job that you had, maybe that goes away or you retire? What happens when the kids grow up and move out of the house? What, what happens in all of these things? They're gifts that the Lord has given. And yet, it's possible, and I would say it's likely, that we continue just to build ziggurats trying to achieve. But I think we have to keep coming back to this the story of our God that we see in Genesis 12. The Lord pursued, the Lord came after Abram. If you're here this morning as a follower of Christ, it's not because you figured out the theology and you got it right and you said, all right, God, I'm ready to commit to you now. It's because you were dead and Jesus gave you a new heart. He took you who were dead and made you alive and even gave you the gift of faith. Like it's all his initiative, it's all his pursuits. He takes the weak and the foolish things of this world. He says, those are my people. And he does that so we wouldn't applaud ourselves or be full of ourselves, but rather he would get all the glory. He would get the love that he deserves. And that's when we come alive. We have to remember this, our symbol. You think about what is so often used as a symbol for Christianity. It is not a ladder, but it's a cross. It's not climb the next rung, get to the next level, Keep achieving, keep growing, keep hustling, keep doing that, right? Because eventually you run out of levels. And in that spot, you don't want to look back and be like, wow, this is it? The symbol of our belief system, of the story that we're invited into, that we now know more in full than Abraham only had just kind of a, uh, like a taste of it, a little bit of like what was going to come. We now live on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb. 
we know that God is the one who has condescended to us. This is why the Apostle Paul would write this in Philippians chapter two. Look at this. He's writing to a group of Christians. He's saying to a church, hey, here's the mindset. Have this posture. Share in this. Have this mind among yourselves. And this belongs to you in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to define that posture, that mindset, that downward trajectory of Jesus. He says this, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most shameful of deaths. He had every right to grasp for what rightfully belonged to him. He's the Lord. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of everything. Like, I grasp for things that ultimately don't belong to me. Jesus had every right to keep his hand clenched because it actually is all his, and yet he didn't grasp for it. He willingly emptied himself. This downward trajectory, it's not us going up to God. It's God coming down to us. And this story here in Genesis 12, it's like this foreshadowing of what's going to happen when we get to those times of the year where we start talking about the incarnation, about Jesus being born. It's an early Christmas story. It's God coming down. If we think about this, it's reported that in, on his deathbed that the final words of Buddha were this, strive without ceasing. Imagine you're on your deathbed. You've gathered around, maybe your spouse is still alive. You got your you know, family, kids, grandkids, friends, neighbors, right? And they're all looking. You got just like, can barely talk, right? You're trying to get out some final words. You're like, my friends, just remember this. Never stop striving. And then you die. I mean, that's exhausting. Strive without ceasing. But that is the narrative. That is ziggurat theology. That is go and go and go and go. And you remember Jesus' final words? As his mother's at the foot of the cross and the disciple whom he loved, John, his enemies and his friends and his family that are gathered around. Jesus' words right before he died were not keep striving, but rather it is finished. It's accomplished. I came down. I conquered. I conquered Satan's sin and death so that you in my downward trajectory could actually then be exalted to a newness, raised to a newness of life. He came and did what we could never do. We cannot get to God on our own, but Jesus has made a way. The life of Abram is pointing to that reality. And we're gonna see ways that he fails miserably. We're also gonna see, and we'll look at it here in just a moment, ways that he actually does love God that he's loyal to God even when it would cost him. And he only knew in part, like we know, we know what Christ has done for us. We know the fuller story. So I wanna close with this, these last few verses. If in the midst of this chaos, God reached down and pursued Abram and said, you don't have to climb, you don't have to, I'm coming to you, I'm going to rescue you. What do we see then Abram doing? Like, how does he respond? And I'll put before you that he makes a choice, all right? 
that he goes out, and I would say he's choosing consecration. To consecrate is to set something apart. It's sacred, it's holy. He is reclaiming the task that was put before Adam and Eve. This is this beautiful thing, and we don't have time to unpack all of this, all right? But as we look at these verses, we'll look again at chapter 12, verse 1, but then drop down to 4 through 9. Hear this. God comes to Abram, and he puts before him. It's like, okay, there's a choice. How will you respond to the love that I'm showing you? John Calvin, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, he paraphrased verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Because 12, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, the land that I will show you. Here's the paraphrase by Calvin. He said this, I command thee to go forth with closed eyes. And until having renounced thy country, thou shalt have given thyself wholly to me. He said, Abram, it's like your eyes are closed. You don't know all the particulars. But the way that our God works so often is he calls and then he equips along the way. I want to be perfectly trained, equipped, ready to go. And then, Lord, okay, tell me what to go and do. And the Lord's like, no, 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 I'm calling you. You think Abram was like perfectly obedient? You think he doesn't have things to work out? Like seriously, read the rest of Genesis 12. You'll see very quickly that he has things still to work out. He's not completely sanctified. He's not completely loving God and faithful to God. Things I'm sure he was still confused about, about like, oh, how's the, the worship of the moon God versus this God? But the Lord reaches down. He's like, will you trust me? Will you follow me? And when he says this, the Lord said to Abram, go. That word can be translated as like to, to go. And when it says in verse four that he went is this Hebrew word halach, which means to, to walk, to live this out. It's a way that Abraham goes and he walks with God. He follows, God, where will you lead me? It's the same thing that we have to surrender to. Will we halak with God? Will we walk with God? And that word, I was doing a bit of a word study this week on it, can also mean, though, an abandoning, a putting to death. I mean, that's what's at stake here, isn't it? Your entire way of life, everything that you've known, he had a good life, a comfortable life. Clearly, he's got some possessions and some people that kind of are part of his overall. Like, he's probably fairly wealthy. And the Lord is saying, listen, leave that identity and move in a new direction. Follow me. Walk with me. Don't walk with your contemporaries or your peers. Walk with me and trust me. And the question that was posed to Abram is the same for us. Will you walk with God? And so one level, that's a death. It's like all these things that I've pursued, will you walk with God and say to forsake those things? But also to walk with God, to say like Abraham went, Abraham walked. There's intimacy, there's closeness. You get to walk with God. How amazing is that? I love the way that C.S. Lewis spoke of this. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing in, either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. 
to be the kind of creature, to be one kind of creature is heaven. That is, is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Will you walk with God or are you going to walk with the dominant culture of the day? Abraham doesn't do it perfectly, but God has reached out and God has made a way and he's inviting us. And so as we close with this, let me look back and I just wanted to see a couple of things. All week I kind of wrestled with this section. All week I was like, okay, yes, we don't climb. God does this. God comes down. But what is our response? And then what's happening in these verses? True story, about 1 a.m. last night, I kind of woke up and I was like, oh, maybe this is how I rework it, right? And some of you are like, oh, that's procrastination. I call it pressure prompted at its finest, all right? Um, and so um, I don't know what it was, but it was like, okay, how do we distill this down? And maybe it's terrible, but, uh, but for me, one of the things that just started to begin to make sense and reviewing some things and just realizing that what's happening here is it's telling this story. There's so many things embedded in here, like a hyperlink, like when you're on a website and you click it and it takes you somewhere else. This story here, these verses I'm going to read, and there's more, we'll continue to unpack these in the week ahead, but it's all links back to Eden. They're speaking of, even these opening verses, of blessing. I'll make you a great name into a great nation. That word can also be translated as multiplied. The Lord blessed them and told them to to multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. God said that to Noah when he got off the boat and then he failed. And now God is grabbing a hold of a new person, a new family, saying, I'm going to make you into a great nation so that you will be a blessing. My story is going to continue. My redemptive purposes are going to continue. I will get you back to Eden. It's reminiscent as Abram walks, Genesis 3 about this, the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day, looking, pursuing Adam and Eve, even after they had failed. Our God comes seeking after us. It doesn't matter how far you've run in the other direction. God is joyfully, redemptively hunting you down. That's how our God works. And then the Lord says this. He, says, he said to Abram, go. And he says to the land that I will show you, to the land I will make visible to you, to the land that I will reveal to you. And so it tells us this. So Abraham went, Abraham halak. Abraham walked with God as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. And Abraham, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. I love that detail, for one. I don't, we never get to a point where we're like, you know what, I can just do what I want to do, all right? I've lived a long life. I've earned this, right? No, it's like the Lord tells you to do it. You go. Seven, 17, 75, 100. It doesn't matter. The way that we find joy is in following the Lord. It says Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. And he took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the site of Shechem, and then here's this detail, at the oak of Morah. Morah, however one pronounces it. It is always worth asking the Bible, why is that detail there? It's a hyperlink. It's something that's meant to take us back to see, oh, Abraham is called to consecrate, meaning Abraham is called to live out his original purpose as an image bearer, to have dominion, to subdue, to showcase this world belongs to God, this family belongs to God, this city belongs to God, this nation, this is what it looks like to showcase, what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God. And Abraham is now 
doing that. And he's going out. And when it says he got to the oak of Moriah, this can also be translated more as visible or to see at the tree of seeing. The tree of visibility. Go to the land that I will make you see. And there at the tree of seeing, it says, the Lord appeared. The Lord was seen by Abram. And to your offspring, right, I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. God is making these things known. Where else was God visible? Where else were there trees? Where else was somebody walking with God? All of this is pointing back to Eden. And it tells us this, that verse there, verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel. It's not inconsequential. House of the Lord, the house of God. Abram is setting up altars in the middle of a pagan land, false worship. Tells us he pitched his tent. Another reference to one day God's presence, the tabernacle. I mean, all of these things are ways to showcase, oh, it's all about Eden. And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, he built an altar to the Lord there and he called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram journeyed by stages to the Negev. He called on the name of the Lord. He built an altar. He's reclaiming what it means to be an image bearer. Friends, hear this. If God has rescued you, if God has pursued you, has reached down, it is not so that we would sit back. We have nothing to earn, but we get to participate. God has made it possible for you and I to live as the image bearers we were called to say, this belongs to God. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project referred to it this way. He said that Abram is on a worship tour and he's just like, this is God's and this is God. You may be worshiping Baal. You may be worshiping the moon God's sin. It doesn't matter. That's God. He created it. He created all of it. And I'm setting up altars so that everybody knows there's one true God. Do not be deceived. What would it look like in love if we moved out as God's people with this holy calling to consecrate and say, here's what my what it looks like with a neighborhood devoted to God or a family devoted to God. Not because we have to earn anything or a workplace to showcase what it looks like to be surrendered to God, to how we do finances, how we do relationships, how we think about food and recreation, all of those things. So I'll close with this. I love the way the Apostle Peter spoke of this. God has rescued us and God has given us a mission. He's given us a new identity. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises or the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. By God's grace, we get to live as image bearers. Let me pray for us. We'll continue in worship, but take some time as the service continues. Confess, what ziggurats have you been building? And let's celebrate the fact that God has come down to us and ask, Lord, what would it look like for me to consecrate my life, to surrender everything I have, to showcase this belongs to God. Let's worship God with everything that he's given to us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for taking us who are not a people and making us, fashioning us, pursuing us to create us into your people. Thank you that we have 
a seat at the table, that we belong, that we are your sons and daughters. Thank you that we have been given new names, new identities, that our names are written in the book of life. We didn't write them in, God. You did. You pursue, you chase us down. Jesus, you emptied yourself so that we might be actually lifted up. And so, God, I pray that we would live as your image bearers, thinking to live lives, lives of loyalty, commitment, of consecration, just in glad response to all that you've done for us. God, thank you that you've rescued us. God, I pray for any here this morning, either in person or watching this online, God, they don't know you. I pray that they would sense you pursuing them, that they would surrender to you. Even with questions and doubts still, just trust and just surrender. And God, I ask that you would use us as your church for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.